Hey there. Before we get started with this uh, good episode with Matt Curry, you remember he's been on many times. We've, uh, As we mentioned here, we're trying to start up our, our regular chats again. Anyhow, I wanted to just mention uh, real briefly a few discount codes and things that we have, some ads, if you will. First of all, if you're interested in hearing more about the kind of stuff that Matt Curry and I talk about, how Cloud, Cloud Native is panning out with everyone, uh, technologically and meatware-wise, come check out the Cloud Foundry Summit, which is, which is June 13th and 15th. It's over in, uh, what is it, Santa Clara? Uh, and if you use the discount code CFSV17COTE, that's Cloud Foundry, Silicon Valley, 17 Cote, you can get 20% off registration. I'll put a note to it, hopefully, in the uh, chapters for this episode, right where you're listening to it in the show notes, if you go to cote.show as well. Also, we have uh, spring days coming up. So if you're interested in any sort of Java or software development, microservices, all that kind of stuff, especially spring, there'll be two days of it uh, up in Chicago at May, on May 30th and 31st. And if you use the code springdays underscore half off, you can only pay $100 instead of 200 for it. So with that, here's the episode with uh, Matt Curry. We recorded this at OSCON, so there's a there's a bit of hallway noise there. But as ever with him, it's a, a great conversation, and he should be back in about three or four weeks, regularly, recurringly. Bye-bye. So here we are uh, at OSCON. We have returning, uh, sadly, too infrequent co-host Matt Curry. Yes. <laughs> yes, but we're going to get that fixed. That's right. I just sent a every three weeks a recurring meeting which nice. I think that actually works. Sometimes, you know, it's Friday afternoon, and it's like, oh, i got to go uh, help the kids with camping. Yeah. But, but then usually it works out. Everything will be fine. <laughs> yes. So uh, so what have you been up to? You're still at Allstate, right? I'm still at Allstate, uh, and everything is, is going well. You know, we're still, we're still grinding away at the transformation. Uh, yeah. You know, the struggle is real, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's expanded and, and we're figuring out how to scale that and how to operate it across a lot of different teams. And uh, we're maturing a lot of our practices around, you know, how do we do Agile? How do we get really good insight into what uh, different teams are doing, whether they're healthy, making sure that we can kind of um, guide them to be sure that they're on the right track, um, which is all part of, like, keeping everybody happy and productive. And yeah protecting them from the muscle memory of the corporate machine, right? So, you know, kind of with the the management strata, substrata, I don't know if it's sub or super strata, how much time do you think y'all spend uh, doing the sort of, like, uh, coaching and, like, munging and all that stuff you're talking about versus sort of, like, the actual business? And now both of those, obviously, are the actual business, but it's sort of like the worrying about running business stuff and not not sort of like making sure that people are transitioning and changing and stuff like that yeah that's a really great question i think uh at first a lot of our time and energy was focused at the engineering level yeah and that has kind of matured to a degree that i don't know if i would say it's like completely self-sustaining but it's Mm. much more self-sustaining than it was before yeah now I think our focus is on like the management layer, um, you know, what Doug referred to as this frozen middle in his CF Summit uh, yeah. talk, but um, about reminding people that we're dealing with new technology uh, and new technology requires a different operating model. Yeah. So to try to like bring back all the old habits or the way that we're used to doing things isn't going to yield 
uh, the outcomes that people think because yeah, as you have new technology, as you have you know things like microservices and independent releases and autonomous teams trying to project like ITSM onto that doesn't it isn't like a good fit especially if you don't understand the why like I think there's a lot of we were debating about this at dinner last night actually you and I were debating about this if I remember correctly about you know why do we think that it's difficult for people to change their mindset around the operating model and yeah, I think I yeah. said that because I don't think they ever understood why they were doing it in the first place. Yeah. And so everybody's biased by their own experience. And they're basically saying, like, I did this thing before, and it worked really well, and now I'm doing this new thing, and I should just do the same thing, and it's going to work really well again. Yeah. And that's not really, it's not really true, because things uh, have evolved. Like, they're not the same. We're not doing the same work at the same scale. Yeah, like we were talking about, I mean, I think, I think this has been one of the the great mysteries of, of whenever I paid attention to stuff is uh, I forget how, how I was putting it we weren't drinking that much so I don't know why I can't remember <laughs> but, but, but you know it's essentially like uh, everyone well it's sort of like a common known thing that no matter what discipline of human, you know, life, human life you're in that you basically have to be adaptive to change right like you sort of like it's kind of like normal at least in the past let's say 150 years of, of human existence right that things get updated new situations come about and so you have to like relearn things and despite that that's not how most people operate just like you're saying they kind of like stay in a steady state of things and and I think the other thing that's always at this point it's not confusing but that's that's frustrating because I don't understand the mechanics of it. This is a bit of what you're talking about. Is I think it's summarized really well by, I think it's Larman's Law, okay. which basically is this four-part law. Like all laws from Agile stuff, they shouldn't call it a law. They should call it like something Larman thought of one day. Right. <laughs> but it's, it's, a good, it's a good breakdown of the frozen middle, which is like every, every organization is incented to behave how they're currently behaving. And, and they've, they've gotten, uh, that's sort of how they think, therefore. And then so pretty much what an organization will do is that it's always going to revert to the status quo and then also defend being at the status quo. And so one of those things is like everyone will always tell you why you can't do the new thing because right. eventually they just want to go back to status quo. And, and it is like, I think, I think the interesting well, the, it's not so much encouraging, but what you were saying last night that kind of like, it's always good to have more weight on, on a point that's intuitive based, which, is, which was like, well, because people have an experience doing things the new way. And I mean, I'm kind of grossly summarizing what you're saying, but like they have to experience the success of this and then it's easier for them to intuitively know they should be doing things in a new way without, you know, uh, I guess the other tool lever you have is just like trying to force them to do it. <laughs> <laughs> but but that doesn't really work out it very well. It doesn't work out very well, yeah. Espe think, especially if the end goal is like, we want to set up a system where you are intrinsically motivated to do the right thing, and the beatings will continue until you do that. Right. <laughs> yeah, changing incentive systems, as it turns out, is really hard because, as you stated, like self-preservation is the ultimate incentive. Yeah, yeah. Like... I do these things today, if tomorrow we don't do these things anymore, what does that mean to me? Yeah. 
And for the most part, I think it should mean that people are just doing different things. Right. But there is always this fear of like, well, if I can just secure what I'm doing today, uh, then I don't have to worry about like the risk of what if this new thing I have to do tomorrow is something I'm not very good at. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think it's like very unconscious. Like I think most people don't really think about themselves as like change resistors in a sense. Yeah. I think it's just I don't completely understand it because I haven't experienced it and therefore I don't actually believe like oh is this stuff real or is this all just like children from Hacker News talking about how we should do these things that have actually never built production systems. Yeah I know kind of to that point one thing I've been worrying about a little recently it's hard to think about this stuff because you're always supposed to be like not arrogant and a, and a person of the people or whatever but but like like I almost have the sense of like through is this true through most of my career I've always like been a shiny object syndrome person and I want to like I want to like try out new things and as I get older it's not like I want to try it out every day but like every few years I'm open to like doing things in a new way and I'm always searching for a way to optimize which sort of like put one way it makes me sound like great because I'm right. doing that but like I think I think a problem that you're kind of at least to me like nudging up against is it makes me not understand people who don't think that way <laughs> and and yes. who aren't by that by default and I think most people in all walks of life are like that like I mean I guess to be fair I've never really cottoned on to why I would be a vegetarian so maybe that's I've got Larman's law of diet where I'm just like, like I just I always find out a reason to go back to the status quo of eating a bunch of meat. Right. So I'm sure in other walks of life I'm like that, but it it does like create this blind spot of like I don't I don't know what to do with people who like aren't interested in learning for the idea of trying something new, right? And and like so I don't know what to do with them. Yeah, it's a challenge, and I think that. Uh, I mean, Simon Wardley talks about it a little bit. I went to his mapping session uh, here at OzCon, which was awesome. Uh, and I think they're doing some online tutorials with, like, a discount rate that has been... It's floating around there in Twitter. Maybe we'll throw it in the show notes. But uh, he talks about uh, you basically have pioneers, settlers, and town planners. And, right. that, like, people fall into this stratosphere of, like you said, like, new shiny... Uh, always going to be jumping on to the next cool, awesome thing and pushing the boundary of innovation. And then you kind of have this middle of the road, like taking some of that stuff and starting to operationalize it. And then you have like this other group, which is really about, okay, like the process and like we really have to industrialize the the thing. Um, And so I think thinking about people in in that stratosphere and trying to like kind of manage it yeah yeah uh is is somewhat useful um again though i think uh i don't have an answer yeah 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 i I wish i did but i totally i I think i think after uh a couple conversations ago we talked with uh brian gregory at express scripts and and i think after that conversation i and i use this every now and then in talks but like and of course, I put it in a sarcastic, jokey way. But you've got the uh, you've got the cowboys, 
who like I have this picture over there at the Driscoll. You should go see that statue while they're here. It's it's called the uh, the Widowmaker. Okay. And it's a huge statue, not life size, but relatively big. Of like one cowboy has got he's fallen off his horse and gotten his foot stuck in a stirrup. Okay. And as you can imagine, unless you fix that situation really quick, your head turns into oatmeal. <laughs> so that's not a good end. <laughs> so. So behind him is this guy who's gotten out his rifle and he's trying to like shoot the horse out, you know, okay. from underneath him because that's the only way to like live. And and it, you know, I so I use that and I'm like, you know, there's a certain amount of people who are like, oh, this is just every day, not a problem, right? Like I'm fully willing to take on these risks and big things, you know, like they're like the Mavericks. Yeah. And then and then you go to a slide and uh, and it's basically this nice picture of some uh, some waste management personnel putting some garbage into a big truck. And, and it's sort of like, and then there's garbage people, and that's the snarky part. And but like, both of these roles are like equally really needed, because if you're not picking up the garbage, shit right. literally goes down, <laughs> right? Yes. Like, like or it piles up for that. Yeah, matter. it's really important that this highly uh, regularized and doing the same thing over and over again job. Like that must be done, right. <laughs> right? So, so we don't want to reinvent how garbage is dealt with every day, right. or even every week. And so it, it is like, and again, it's put in this this weird way, but it is sort of like there are these different needs and even roles of people that you have. And also, I think there's a lot of people who would really like a good, stable city job, and they enjoy like just maybe they don't like the garbage part of it, but they just enjoy like I, I uh, I'm the park ranger, or I do this, or like they're they're the the Richard Scary jobs, where, where they, they do all the, the regular stuff. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. And uh, I was listening to uh, Andrew Clay Schaefer's talk at GoTo last week, uh, and I thought it was really interesting. He had kind of pointed out that sometimes you can tell, like, when people stopped learning stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By, like, their belief system. And yeah, that's true. I think there's, like, some of that... And then there's also an aspect of you continued to learn, but you just aren't sure that you believe. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Which yeah. is a different uh, thing, right? Yeah. No, yeah. That's like another, another one of my, similar to that structurally, one of my favorite theories is that um, the architecture you see in any city will represent the apex of their economic awesomeness. Okay. So, like, if you like, if you go to San Francisco, it's a little different in San Francisco. I guess it's a mix of like everything is blue glass condo, and then and then also like old Victorian stuff from Gold Rush days. And you go up to Oklahoma, and everything's like 1920s Art Deco when oil is big up there. But yes, that, that's a good way to figure out when people stop learning is like when their ideas are. I don't know. Like you said, there's no good answers. There isn't, and you know, there's just over analysis. Approach. <laughs> yeah, I approach every situation a little bit different, try to figure out where people are at. Yeah. I think, like, the only advice I would give anybody is seek to understand where other people are coming from. Yeah, yeah. Because it's really easy to, like, go into attack mode. So, and, so start it, and attacking yeah. people ideal isn't really a great way to, like, get them to join your cause. Yeah, yeah, As yeah. it turns out. You don't, you don't want to tell them that they're dumb, and therefore right. they need to think like you. Right. <laughs> that, that, they don't, that only works in certain religions, I guess. Yeah, and I think, uh, again, like going back to what we were discussing earlier about did, did the individual like ever understand why they were doing the thing? Yes. The really difficult conversation is getting people to the why of like what problem are we trying to solve here? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And let's like take an empirical data approach to trying to figure out how do we come to like an agreement. Yeah, yeah. It's like I, I think uh, I don't I don't think the old five wise thing gets enough enough uh, whatever nowadays. Because yeah, you know, that 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 Sinek dude kind of took that over, but he never. I don't. I think he had like three concentric circles, but so maybe he had like three Ys, but he never really went over the five Ys. And and the more structured way, I think that that you know, uh, what is it? TPS, TPS people would do it. But I think that's it's always instructive to like kind of exhaust the abstraction layers. <laughs> yeah, I, so five Ys is awesome. I mean, one Y is like people could benefit from that. In my, many that's mind blowing on it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I somebody was talking. I don't remember who I was talking to, and they were like, "But why five? <laughs> the thing about five Y's is you stop asking why after five, but perhaps you should keep going. Yeah, perhaps I, there's I, only two. <laughs> I, th- I think I think there is there is uh, with all of the like Toyota lean stuff. There there is a certain practicality of it that they don't explicitly go over, which is kind of like. Yeah, but also, like, lunchtime's coming up, so there's only so much we can do. (laughs) You can tell every now and then in Toyota, think they kind of just, like, cut it off. They're sort of like, let's try to solve the problem and then just work on it, and then tomorrow something will happen and we'll solve that problem again. They're just like, they they set up the system to not get an analysis paralysis. Yeah, and 5Ys is, uh, I mean, the whole why thing is super interesting, but I think there's... Like, it's definitely influenced by the context and the belief system, because the answers to the why are influenced by yeah. the person who's answering the question, like, their worldview. Yeah. Yeah, maybe, man, I bet the 6Y is always, like, because I need a job. I'm like, no, 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 we, don't, every, we got that. We don't right. need to. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the bedrock. Right. Well, another, another thing, I don't think we've actually recorded about this, but we've kind of alluded to this every now and then, is this idea of, like, what is architecture nowadays? And and like and then and then I think for as long as I've I've known how to like program, this question of like how much architecture is needed has been around. And I think it started off with basically UML. And that was maybe speaking of the apex of economic power, I think maybe that was the height well, maybe that was the there's the height of architecture and then SOA soap. Let's yes. WS Star came around and that was that was another height, and then, and then we had this trough of basically rails. <laughs> yes, where we don't do any of that. Yeah, at and, all. And then I think a few a few years later, people were like, "Oh, we should maybe pay attention to some architecture." Anyways, like it always goes up and down. But like, what what's what's your thinking of like this question of like how much architecture is needed, or how does that fit into things? We could probably do a whole episode on my opinions on this, but. <laughs> to follow up on what you just said, like I think the DDD book, the the Eric Evans book, oh, yeah, was kind yeah. of like the pendulum swinging back to middle. Yeah, because it's like you should probably draw some boxes and have a pretty good idea about how the things interact. Uh-huh. And you can totally do this within the context of like agile or extreme programming or whatever. Yeah, um, I think UML was like the dark ages of us figuring out how to build software. Um, yeah, but and then obviously. You know the the rails like my architecture will be defined but purely by the tests that I write is probably like yeah. saying like I can I don't even know you're like staring at the leaf and you have no view of like the forest yeah 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 uh, and so so there is definitely like a practical approach um, that's sensible 
And I think like that pragmatism uh, has to expand into all areas of architecture. But I think what's interesting, and this is kind of my big commentary on this, is like the architectures you have are not, or the architects you have, or the architecture practice that you have is not what you need. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of like, per what we were talking about earlier. Yeah, and and I think that's occurred for a number of reasons. Um, like one is I think that most firms don't have a really good promotion path for distinguished engineers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so engineers become architects as a mechanism yes. for promotion. Right. Uh, but as because, it turns because out, of the, the sixth why. Yes. We, we need a, we need a job. But as it turns out, architects have to be like really good at communicating and articulating abstraction, and a lot of those folks are terrible at that. Yes. But they might be really good software engineers. And so what happens, I think, is the architects that you have are not the right people for that job. And so you end up with an architecture practice that isn't accomplishing the outcome that architecture was intended for. Yeah. Um, and then I think there's this also interesting play, uh, bringing up Andrew Clay Schaefer again, every time I talk to him, he's like, have you read the Google SRE book? Have you read the Google SRE book? So I've read the first like three to four chapters. I don't think that totally counts. Yeah. I, I, I think I, I've more or less read it all. And, and I think, I think the, the idea with that is like, you should skip the next 10 chapters yeah. and go right back into the, uh, the management layer stuff. Right. Although I don't know, you probably would be interested in, in the middle part because it is, it's kind of in- well, I shouldn't say kind of. It's interesting to read their perspective on how you run stuff on, on systems management. Yeah, and I think that one thing that became apparent to me, I went to their OzCon session here, and it, that was fantastic as well, but it was architecture. Like, it was systems yeah, yeah, design. Yeah. Basically, like, how do you scale the thing and, like, what happens under failure conditions, which really is, like, a lot architect of what architecture is all about. So there's this interesting convergence of like that practice um, and how it's manifesting itself at Google. At the same time, like without architects, we probably don't have platforms. Yeah. Because otherwise, who's like noticing the repetitive patterns and like bubbling that up to some level of abstraction? That yeah, yeah. No, that, that's a good way of putting it. Like I was, I was writing down some idea here. I hadn't thought of to connect it to that, but that's that's exactly it. Is like I think, I think there's almost two notions of architecture. One of them is like the, let's call it the a priori to be all fancy pants like thing where like in order to write the software, we need to have an architecture that kind of defines how things are going to be laid out, right? Like, and this is, I wouldn't call it waterfall think, but it's like, you know, it's like horse cart before the horse think, like it's doing things in an order. And and that has some validity. Like, you should, uh, you know, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail, as it were. <laughs> but I think, I think, like, as you're talking to, there's this... One of the struggles that we have more is what, exactly what you're describing is, like, a huge function of architecture is ensuring the resilience of your software and also the overall, like, application. Like, like you know, from, from a, a base level for the architecture of an SRE is, like, this is a huge scale application and things are going to like screw up. So you must do them this way right. so that they can run. But then even a level above that is like, uh, you're going to want to be able to implement these kind of features and these kind of integrations. And like, as we learned when suddenly like smartphones were like a big deal, like you really are going to need to have a 
totally new UI in like six months or you're going to be in trouble, <laughs> right? Like, so you should, you, architecture is almost that, that's future-looking stability, which I, I, I don't know if a lot of architects like do that. Like, yeah, more, it's the broader context. And then, well, yeah, and we're getting ready to like do a little bit of soapboxing here, getting up on the soapbox, but you know, you talk to architects in like large enterprise and half of their function is like approving what open source libraries people are going to use. Yeah, yeah, they're gatekeepers. That's not really what architecture was ever intended to be and that's terrible. Yeah, which just to interject again, which is interesting because the the SRE people also do that function, right? They also have some gatekeepery function. Right. And, And the way that they enforce it is a little different. They enforce it through I guess pain, <laughs> right? Like, like if you don't follow our rules, we will not help you. They 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 do it through the "I'm taking my toys home" thing. That's that's why I love the SRE model because there's the right incentive system in place for them to define sensible architectures. Yeah, yeah. Versus more of the traditional like ivory tower architecture approach, where it's like I'm going to draw stuff on a whiteboard or like in Visio, and then my job kind of ends there. Yeah. And whatever like day two or day one pain I inflict on you is like totally not my problem. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. I guess if they're not to derail what your idea was, but if there's if there's a spectrum of architectures we're talking about, and one side is governance. Yeah. Right and and on the extreme end is like architect Joseph Stalin, who <laughs> 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 just is totally the governance is dictatorial, right? Yes. And then on the other end is like diplomacy, and and the and I don't know what the extreme end of diplomacy would be. It's just sort of like I don't know, maybe like Timothy Leary defining reality second by second as you're like your gourds being blown, right? Like, you're just constantly making, you know, figuring out what it is. But it seems like the the SRE stuff is a lot closer to diplomacy in the sense of, like, to, to use another word, it's collaborative, right? right? And, and there's a certain base set of things that are not really up for negotiation, but you sort of can negotiate things, right? Like, in diplomacy, I'm pretty sure part of the negotiation is, like, First, let's agree not to try to kill each other, <laughs> right? Like, yes. Another thing we might agree on is like we would like to trade with each other, right? Yeah. There's a certain baseline of things, and then above that, everything else we kind of negotiate, right? Like it's all negotiable. Yes. And so, like, I feel like maybe the SRE people are a little—they're more on the di- diplomacy side than kind of like you were starting to say the governance side of like I am the gatekeeper that must approve everything. And, and we will establish laws that cannot be broken, right? And there's no debate about it. Yeah, and I think, like, what happens uh, culturally, uh, speaking from a little bit of my own experience, is, like, the the architects end up with kind of a target on their back because they become <laughs> yeah. the group of people that is relied upon to make a decision when nobody wants to make a decision. Oh, yeah, that's They're, interesting. Which is, like, they are the ultimate, like people that we blame when things go wrong and so you always have this like organizational dynamic of like oh well the architect like made this decision as it turns out the architect may have never wanted to make that decision in the first place but absent anybody else in whatever meeting or or decision committee being willing to make a decision they made the best decision they could with the information they had at the time Yeah, yeah and then there becomes this like cultural like underpinning of of, hey, architecture like doesn't know what they're doing. 
Yeah, yeah. And we'll just blame them for all the bad decisions that we made them make because even though we had more knowledge about the context of that decision, we were we did not have the courage to be like yeah. on the hook for the consequences of that decision. Yeah, that's an interesting confluence of things because usually the orientation is that uh, shit flows downhill. Right. But th- there are several positions where you almost have built an aqueduct to have the shit go uphill. <laughs> and, 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 and like, it's a weird application almost of the, uh, like the hero anti-pattern, right? Like you're establishing this one role to take on all this responsibility and suffering of doing this thing when really, kind of like you said, like the, the, the pain of that should be distributed amongst the team, yes. right? And, I mean, I guess ultimately a situation like that occurs because, well, it sustains itself in a bad way because the group has decided to delegate potential blame to this role. They're kind of like, I, I don't want any part of that, right? That's not my job, right? right? And therefore, therefore, if it gets screwed up, even though I might have been heckling it and knew the right answer, not my fault. <laughs> yeah, and as it turns out, like, instead of the person who has the most information and is most qualified to make the decision making the decision like some poor sucker with a job title makes the decision and yeah, then yeah. it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy of like the exact discussion we're having which is like is architecture dead or like is are, do they offer value and it's yeah. all of these cultural dynamics of you know the enterprise and and you know, just companies in general, like organizational uh, mechanics that basically lead to this weird interplay of like how people yeah. communicate with each other and like the things they do. So, so what are your thoughts about how you, how you know one could start to fix that problem or address it? Well, so I think like to me, it's kind of a symptom of a cultural underpinning of it's not okay to be wrong. Mm. Yeah, and so I think to the degree that you can focus on building a culture around experimentation and learning and celebrating learning even when you're wrong because you oriented the pivot quickly I think that goes a long way like people people will feel more empowered to make decisions when uh, the consequences for those decisions are low yeah yeah like if nothing bad is going to happen and do, do you have do you have some uh some experience or like rules you're making up of like how to bootstrap that into the the culture like like for example to recite it again you know an SRE book they 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 make this point it, it kind of gets back to what we were talking about earlier is this is one of those things that's hard to uh, what's the opposite of intuitive not deductively but it's it's hard to it's hard to Reason, teach yeah. teach someone to think that way right. right? And so even when the when that book goes over, it's kind of hard. It, it doesn't quite convince you, but they they say an end result of of having uh, not worrying about failure is that at all hands meetings every now and then we have someone go over a massive failure, right? right. And we to a certain extent like celebrate it, right? Like it's I guess it's like uh, like it's like rubbernecking, like what you're rubbernecking at is always tragic and we should be worried about people's stressful out but to assert by by the fact that everyone rubbernecks it is also entertaining 
yes. <laughs> right? And so if you can shift it, you're sort of like, let's be entertained by someone fucking up big time. <laughs> 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 and, then, and then as long as, and then after that, people like them were like, oh, well, this is kind of fun. Like I get celebrated for yeah, not, not for screwing up, but for like being public about it and learning from it, and for yeah, and for being transparent. And uh, so I don't know. I mean, in your experience, like, what are how do you how do you get that into an organization to be man, okay with screwing up? So I think uh, I think one thing that I like to do, and and this is again, I don't think this is organizationally broad, but more of a personal style thing is like I like to refuse to make decisions for people. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. as a leaders, we get asked to make decisions. In many cases, we're not as qualified to make the decision as the engineer who's asking. Yeah. And so I think it's like important to be self-aware enough to just say, actually, like you're way more qualified to make this decision than I am. Let me just reassure you that even if you're wrong, it's going to be okay. Yeah, yeah. No, that's interesting. You you basically just uh, you force them to act like you would expect, and right. and and you. You you at least get a a cocktail napkin and draw metaphorically draw them a picture of a safety net. You're like, right. look, we've got something like this. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, hopefully it's more. But you at least assure them that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess ultimately, literally and figuratively, like you can never really trust the safety net till you have to use it. But the key, well, and that's the thing. Uh, you know, we were talking at GoTo about there was a lot of talk about outages and and one thing that came up in conversation was like you can say that nobody's going to be fired for a major outage but until the outage happens and nobody gets fired nobody believes you yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and so there's there is like a trust aspect so when things do go wrong you have to actually live into the commitment of yeah yeah you know this isn't going to be blame oriented we're not going to stand you up on a pedestal and talk about like why you of all people screwed this up yeah, it is going to be an exercise of like learning and understanding. Yeah, and and then I get—I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but I guess part of the things that, part of the things, one of the things management has to do is probably participate in the blame, like like to some extent, and if only to just kind of like throw your lot in and be like, because in theory the role of management is like, or one of the roles is like, I need to set up the system such that we're successful, <laughs> and so. So if, if we haven't been successful in something, then there's something that I missed or, yeah. or whatever, like something happened. And, and even if logically someone isn't involved in that as a group, it's probably good to participate in the, you know, we always could have done more or something. Yeah, and most management like totally sucks at that. Like, let's just be <laughs> honest. Like, we're talking from a change perspective, like falling on the sword for your people is not a thing that a lot of like leaders do yeah, yeah and you know I think the ones that do uh, command a crazy amount of loyalty because when you go to bat for somebody when especially when they know they screwed up yeah then that's like sets a different precedent and those are the people who are going to innovate for you like going forward and, and take the sensible risk yeah uh, it's it's, uh, it's management dollars well invested yeah so, management capital as it were Right, and like even when the worst possible thing happens, like when have you ever been at a company when the worst possible thing happened and like there was any like really serious consequence? Yeah, like yeah. material consequence. Yeah. Like there are probably there's the night capital example. There's a couple examples here and there, but those are definitely outliers. Yeah, 
for the I most. Mean, I, I guess the at least I'm sure there's other ones. The, the biggest negative consequence, which feeds into your point, is like when the Target CEO had to resign because right. of the security breach and and also probably other things, right? Like it, that's like that's that's a pretty. That's a bit of a, maybe it's more like a grapefruit instead of a pea, but it's kind of a grapefruit underneath a stack of mattresses right. of an issue. Right. <laughs> but anyhow, but then to that point, like, well, Target's still around, right? Like, like yeah. they, they like as an organization, they survived it and they were fine. And so it turns out to have not been that big, a, a catastrophic deal. Yeah. So it's, uh, I think, you know, and that's the difference, I think. You know, going back to our conversation earlier, is the change agents view it in that lens, and yeah, yeah. On the other side, it's like if anything terrible happens, it's the end of the world. It's more of a chicken little syndrome. Yeah, and I guess maybe that's another attribute is of that kind of thinking is having a long term view of things, which right. which I think I think a lot of the uh, what would you call them like G whiz business books. From like, yeah. so you do another gradient. On one end of the spectrum is Malcolm Gladwell, and on the other side is Nassim Taleb, right? Like, but those are basically all gee whiz business books. Yeah. And and like, I think in most of those things, like one of the tricks is like, well, you should instead of paying attention to the uh, to the one year term, you should pay attention to the twenty five year term, right? Because that that changes basically it changes all the averages. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, and when, once you screw with the averages, like, it gives you a different appreciation for how everything sorts out. And so, like, three disastrous years are not that big of a deal when you have, like, 22 great years, right? right. Or, like, when Facebook IPO'd and it was terrible and now it's great. And, like, yeah. and, and Amazon was, like, in the tank for a while until everyone was like, holy crap, I see what was going on here. <laughs> like, yeah, and your point is great. Like, you know, I... I think we don't have enough faith in like what really smart people can accomplish when they're when they have the right vision and mission. Yeah, yeah, especially over the long term, right? right? Yeah, and and we spend so much time like trying to protect ourselves from like what if they're wrong that in many cases like we we aren't able to capitalize on the full potential of like their ability and like yeah, why yeah, we yeah. hired them. And, yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, you being at an insurance company in yeah. the core business, they probably understand long-term success, right? Because <laughs> yeah, because it's basically like we have these relatively, anyways, these these pools of money, and as the decades go by, we're we're set. Yes, <laughs> right. Like we know when we pay it out, and I mean we're actuaries, so we understand the the twenty, thirty, fifty year like thing of money and how that grows and doesn't grow and how to plan it out. And you yeah. just have to like apply that to uh, an IT sense. So one, one thing I want to come back to and talk about, now I'm going to take the host and I'm yeah, going to interview yeah, yeah. you for a minute, but you know, I talked a little bit about kind of like leaders falling on the sword or like leading, you know, I guess leading by example is another one of those or, you know, the servant leader. Like we've, we've, yeah, we've yeah. heard kind of all of these things. You've obviously talked to a lot of customers that are going through digital transformation. Any any common patterns regarding that in terms of like where you're seeing traction and where you're not, or like as far as just changing in general, or, or yeah, or the it? or the degree that you've seen like leadership behavioral change and like oh, how that's yeah, impacted yeah, yeah. the overall effort, um, and maybe what's worked. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, and this is why uh, I think, I think your your T-shirt talk is perhaps over-referenced, <laughs> as, as we were joking about last night. But but it does, 
it, it in a nice way makes it we were talking about this last night is I think the only thing is this true well not to get it too abstract but the only thing that works is to like dramatically change right and so that's sort that's very tautological it's like if you want to change you must change right yeah. which is a good jokey uh, slide title right. but like what that means in the context of your question is that management has to dramatically change right and that's kind of the point of symbols that you make with hoodies and t-shirts and, and everything is that like the first management has to like think about and I guess first of all what do we mean by management we mean people who are maybe not even like the tech lead on a team I mean to some extent but the, the, the middle management and senior management right and they had to think a lot about maybe when they go off on that fancy retreat in February to some nice resort and they're, they're uh, you know, they have Tony Robbins come and tell them how to like be a better person they, should, they need to spend some time thinking about like what is my job what do I do what are the goals of the company and I think to some extent almost completely evaluate what they do on a day to day and then a yearly basis right and see if like it's uh, to use an old management book right like uh, smell the cheese often to see if it's still good <laughs> yeah and, and like so that's kind of like the framing that I see and what that ends up meaning is is management does I almost feel like they're the ones who end up having to change what they do the most yeah because and they're, I think their job is the hardest to initially do and then more importantly sustain because by definition someone who's management is a uh, an achiever to use the big Lebowski term right? right and they're used to like bureaucratic knife fighting and staking out claims and like they're rising through a corporate structure which is I'm sure Allstate is fine, but like <laughs> many other places I work at is like not a pleasant situation to be in, right? Like basically most, the way most organizations work is it's a zero sum game, right? So like if, if my fellow five SVPs, the more they fail, the more I succeed, yeah. right? And so like, so again, the, the, it's not again, but getting back to it, the challenge becomes they, if you are like a, ch a VP of changing, you have to push that change up and out like to your peers yeah and that's exponentially harder than just getting a dba to be cool with like talking to developers more <laughs> right because totally agree and and so that's that's where a huge amount of the challenge comes from and i think but you have to do it right this is another one of those things that's inexplicable is you have to somehow you have to make a study, and this is what I always mean by bureaucratic knife fighting, is it's situational and different, but somehow you've got to get to like the board or the CEO or whatever group controls the most cash flow <laughs> and get them to be on your side. Because at that level, it's just all about cash flow and profit, right? Whoever, whenever you can like get them to be on your side, then things are easy street. And like, without naming names, like there's, um, there's some big retailers I've worked at. And once they get the the actual business units who are responsible for the lines of business on their side, then pretty much it's easy street or it's easier street, right? Sure. And so like you just somehow you figure out how to get the cash flow people on your side and then they'll let you do whatever wacky theoretic IT shit you want to. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, um, I mean, that's a point that we've talked about a hey, lot. Is how's it going? Is the big, the big challenge is how do you create alignment between business and IT and most IT organizations, like if we're very honest about delivery, 
don't really have the credibility to stand exactly. on to start dictating to the business like how they should build yeah, software yeah. products or any other product for that matter. And, and then I think I think the one other so it's 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 kind of a crappy answer because the answer is like you sh- you just need to change. But I, I think I think there's context to it, right? So the first thing was like context of like the way you clear the decks so you can change is to get get aligned with the business, which means help people make more money, right? right. Find the cash flow of people. And the other one is related to that. And I particularly noticed this in government, government and military institutions, right? Is and they're a little different where I don't know how it is in the rest of the world, but the US government people I talk to, they're basically fifteen or ten years behind not always technologically, but sort of like well, the symptom of it is procurement and sourcing. But I think the disease is more thinking about the pace at which we should be thinking in a citizen-centric way of delivering IT. Or, or, a, or as the military people would say, a mission-centric way, right? And so, like, like, for example, if you're in a policing function, your job is basically to make sure that the individual police people can communicate really fast with each other and can kind of sync up about what they should be doing. Right. Whereas if you're in a, a more citizen-facing thing, your job is to make sure that, like, when I go to the DMV, it's as quick and painless as possible. And until recently, uh, you should probably accept credit cards. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like, I, I, it's only recently that I remember being able to go to the DMV and pay with a credit card. And I think they still impose, like, a, a 2.5% fee, which is sort of weird. Yes. Because it's sort of like, but this is at the end of the day all my money so <laughs> can you just bundle that into the price I don't mind right <laughs> anyways um, and I don't think that mentality like pervades government thinking as much as it should yeah and and then a consequence of that if you're not thinking in a user centric way this is kind of a shaggy dog explanation but it, but uh, if you're not thinking in a user centric way you don't fix procurement so that every two years you can go and get the best way of doing something and so you get stuck with these old systems and then there's also things about uh, procurement exists how it does in government because as Americans we are and it was Mark Schwartz reading his business value book that made me realize this is like I think when it comes to the government government our number one goal is to uh, um, uh, what's the word is, is to prevent fraud or corruption yes. right because that's basically what the first 150 years and still that's what the government was was a bunch of corruption right and so now that is the number one thing we don't want the government to do so it's part of it's the number one story on the backlog is prevent corruption right no <laughs> so, matter the cost yeah exactly it doesn't it has in fact it doesn't matter at all the co- the ultimate cost could be we do nothing right and then that that delivers on that first story done Right. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. So anyway, so that all gets to the the part is I think I think when I see people who are successful at government and military change, they realize the consequences of everything that I was just saying is just like, "Oh, we need to modernize how we do things, and therefore we are just going to do things totally different." And then they government's interesting because you get to a certain level and basically you don't have to argue with your peers. You're just like, yeah, I'm I'm the three-star general in charge of this shit. So, it will happen. Right. <laughs> like like once I decide 
and more or less went over my executive my executive officer and immediate staff like I basically tell them to do it and they do it right sometimes they do it too perfectly <laughs> but like I essentially like in a government structure in a bureaucracy that's what a bureaucracy is to some extent is like they they do it right or or I basically remove their funding and they're done so so, so I think which doesn't thing, always happen in government stuff but yeah I think I mean listening to you talk about that like one thing that comes to my mind is like is this really all just execution yeah and I, and I actually think the answer to that is no like Steve Jobs I had some famous quote and I'm gonna screw it up but it was basically along the lines of like high degrees of teamwork at the management level results in high levels of teamwork at every other level exactly and so like you're kind of talking about is like when management actually starts to operate as a collaborative team together in a cross-functional way, instead of just like knife fighting over the next slot at the next level, then I think that is something that drives change. Exactly. And that has some part to do with execution, but a lot of it is behavioral. Yeah. And then I guess the only other comment that I have, which is like completely unrelated to what we've been talking about, Completely, but is I, I think the funny thing about the T-shirt bit was, and I am giving that talk later this year uh, <laughs> at at the Sands DevSecOp uh, Summit. So come come hang out and see that. But uh, was it the the implication is like putting on a shirt is something that's a very simple thing and requires like no effort. Yeah, like almost zero effort. But it's a very, like, visible change and sends a very clear message yeah. out that change is happening to everyone. Strategically, it's buy low, sell high. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Like. And so it's like you said, like, leadership has to change behaviors, and that can be really hard to do, but it needs to be visible because a lot of times, like, leaders don't change like they're just not changing yeah, like, yeah. the change ends at the powerpoint slide totally no that, that's that's it you, you could give like the first slide i give in my stump speech which is uh i, I go to a slide and it's the one that has a picture of you right oh, okay and, and i always say like all right how many people in the room are managers and, <laughs> and usually depending on if i be, anyways usually there's like five percent of the people raise their hand i'm like all right all the rest of you this is the time we get to laugh at the managers <laughs> and, then, and then it's basically the point you're making is like uh, unless management is like all in on this stuff, you're gonna fail, right? Yeah. And then as staff, as individual contributors, you should be paying attention to that constantly because, like, just to state the the obvious thing that's that's for this context of what we're talking about should be stated more is like if the staff don't trust that the management is all in, they're just gonna sandbag. Like the staff will make you fail. Yeah. And so they have to trust that like. I mean, everything we've talked about starts with, oh, I trust that management actually is, wants to do this and they mean what they're saying. And then, and then I always have that joke is like, you can always tell the management where it's like, they give you these slides and they're like, see ya, I'm off to the, uh, the annual sales retreat reward meeting. Yeah. Have fun. <laughs> yeah, like the change is in your hands. Uh, <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think, I think that's really interesting. Uh, you know, and and one thing that I, I tell people often is the way that your organization views you is they take what you say 
and they try and reconcile that against what you do, and they smash those things together yeah, yeah, and come yeah. up with some belief system about what you actually believe. Yeah, yeah. Which is fundamentally creates the core of their incentive system. Because yes. their incentive system exactly. is to get promoted, and the way to get promoted is to do what you as a leader want them doing, which they're going to like make assumptions about what you want. Yeah. So like, if you're selling this change thing, and your behavior is inconsistent with that, then like your org will not do it, because they don't think it's what you believe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they'll do whatever they think you believe because that's how yeah, they get promoted. Totally. Like it's all brings it back to and, the incentive. And, you know, I, I think. I mean, so there's four things before we wrap up. Let's we'll see if I remember them. I yeah. barely can remember two. <laughs> but one, I, I think. I think um, valuable as we are, if there's one thing humans are really good at, it's figuring out what someone is actually thinking, right? right? And what they're in, like, like it, this is. If I remember when someone was trying to teach me basketball, like the, a physical manifestation of this is like. I forget if it's the hips or the eyes. It's the hips. You should always watch, like, the hips. Because that will deter... Pe- people will, like, turn their body before they turn their eyes. Right. So you can see... And they'll try to fake you out by looking somewhere else, but they'll be turning some other way. And so, like, humans are really good at reading all of the, the physical and other symbols of, like, this is what they're actually saying, right? And so, like, you got to line that up. And then the... Let's see. So this, the, the second thing is, I think... Um, uh, I think, I think maybe this is a frustration that I have with a lot of culture talks in our world is they're more mostly about, and not that this is bad, but they're primarily about the staff level, like how individuals and even teams should think. Yeah. And there's very little culture talks about how management should behave and change, especially senior management, right? right? Like, we just like, we even did it here. You gratuitously complain about the frozen middle and you're like, ah, oh, frozen middle, right? right. Which, which has a, a, a good generative discussion to be had, but that, that's almost part of the staff as well. And, and, but what, what really is very rarely discussed is like, so if I'm a vice president or an SVP or whatever the hell you want to call it, right? Like, what do I do, right? Like, and that doesn't come up very much. So like, that's something that it'd be good to focus more on that. And then to that end, um, hopefully your friends at Allstate will approve this interview. But I did, I did a... I did a <laughs> To, to the end of like of having good advice for like management, I think Gary Groover is one of the only people who writes about this stuff. Like yeah, the, yeah. He, like, and that's why. I, and then that business value book that Mark Schwartz wrote. Like, there's a few really good books that prove the point that there's not enough literature on it. So yeah, that, that HP use case or the case study Agile book was awesome. Yeah, yeah. I tend to send that to people uh, when we're like first getting started totally. with the Agile discussion. It's it's good because you can be like, if they did it for firmware. What's your problem? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, and I, there's also another thing where I think he says, we spent a year writing test harnesses. Right. And it was worth it. <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, so one of the things that I was talking with your, uh, your, your, your colleague, Opal, like I, and, and I think we should have more advice like this for, for management is, I forget how we got to this, but it was basically like, so as a manager, when you like, are down and like, you're thinking this is all a failure, like, what do you do, right? Because you, as... as as a leader, there's not really room for you to be publicly disappointed right. <laughs> and mopey. <laughs> and she was saying, well, one of the things that I found is you have to build up uh, a network of peers who you can basically go to and be like, 
I'm mopey. And they'll be like, no, no. Let me tell you evidence-based ways, like, why you're doing a great job, right? Like, right. you might have totally, like, shit the bed in your organization for the past month or so. But you remember that time, yeah. <laughs> like, not too long ago that you did a good thing? And she, of course, didn't use terminology like that. And, <laughs> and then if you look at the long, like, you've been doing this for a year. And remember that the business has grown this much and you've improved that. So... You have to build up an, as management a network of people who you can, I guess, literally or figuratively go have drinks with and for them to cheer you up. Because it is like, because you're at the top of that aqueduct. Yeah, and I would <laughs> of, say of like... pumping all the bad stuff uphill. Even when you're a part of rapid, rapid change and improvement, especially when you're coming in and like, in terms of how that is relative to how change has been historically over the company that you're in. Yeah. It never feels fast. Yeah, 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 exactly. Like, I, I've been a part of it on a couple occasions, and it has never... Like, it always feels like a grind yeah. when you're in it. It's just like... And, it, and that's what it is. It's just a, a huge sum of small daily, like, incremental improvements and just, like, pushing pushing the rock uphill. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. And, and especially in management, very few people are ever like, good job today, management. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and it's it's compounded because being not not to get too to whatever, but being a privileged node in the network, you're sort of not morally allowed to complain about not being appreciated. Right. <laughs> like like the higher the higher the privilege level, the ethically like you're not allowed to carp about being underappreciated. So yeah. there you go. That that's I forgot what the fourth thing is, but like you should find your manager and say like, Good job management. Buck them up a little bit. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> All right. Well, do you have anything else you want to go over? No, man. I think we covered it uh, pretty well. So so we'll be back in about three weeks or so. That's going to be awesome. What we're going to talk about. Well, you know, I renamed this podcast from Lords of Computing okay. to just the Cote Show. Okay. Then so that way it's a variety. So if you want to subscribe to this, it's just you go to get this URL. What a world we live in. It's Cote.show. That's actually like a TLD. Hey, look at that. Yeah, yeah. See? Good job, management. Good job, management. <laughs> A plus. But you yeah. should make t-shirts. You should, uh, you, you should uh, go, go look up Cote Show and subscribe to it, leave a review, or just write to us on Twitter. What's, what's your Twitter handle there? My Twitter handle is Matt J. Curry. And I'm, I'm uh, Cote. And uh, yeah, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.